Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we praise you that we have this family of believers that will come together to worship you, that we have a, a, a group of people that will come together to, to put themselves second so that we can glorify you and we can magnify you. God, as we open your word, Lord, we know that your word is about you, so I pray that you will help us to learn about you and so that it can affect our lives and we can be more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So our sermon series that we're going through this year for the, the whole year of 2020 is uh, it's called The Return from Exile, and we're looking at the post-exilic books. So these are the books in the Bible that was written after the Jews were allowed to return from exile and go back to uh, Judea and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and there are six books in here, and that's uh, Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah are the historical books. They give us that uh, kind of historical perspective. And then uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi give us the perspective from the prophets. Um, so we get to kind of see both sides of that. The overarching theme in all of these books, all six of these books, the overarching theme is depending on God. And we'll see that played out a little bit more in this, uh, this passage this morning. It's really about that depending on God. And the songs we sang this morning uh, really tied in really well with that. I don't know if Miss Deborah was looking at my notes or not. Um, but this morning, uh, we are going to be in Zechariah 4 and 5. Uh, we'll get all of chapter 4 and in the first four verses of chapter 5. Uh, we are currently looking at Zechariah's night visions. Um, and these night visions, uh, they're called night visions because he was woken up in the middle of the night by the angel um, and he was given these visions. Uh, we know that it came right in the middle of winter for them. Um, but this morning, it's the vision uh, 5 and 6, and it's a gold lampstand and a flying scroll. Like I said before, we're going to be really going through these fairly quickly. Um, we know that there's going to be a lot of information in here, a lot of details in here that we're just going to kind of skim the surface on them. Um, we could step back and probably still have a lot of questions about them when we're done, but like I said before, we could spend a whole year just on these eight visions and probably still have a lot of questions left. Um, but when we're looking at these from uh, our purpose, we want to know more about God and how that applies to us as a church revitalization in 2020. So we want to know what does this tell us about God and what does that mean for us now? Um, and so the fifth vision is... Um, is a, a golden lampstand, and the sixth vision is a flying scroll. The main idea here uh, is that the requirement for, it shows us the requirements for God's power and God's presence. Um, and we see that in the first vision is that faith brings God power, and the next one is that God's presence requires purity. So we'll go ahead and jump right into this fifth night vision, starting in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. It says, The angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I replied, I see a gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven sprouts for each of the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? Don't you know what they are? replied the angel who was speaking with me. I said, No, my lord. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not, my strength, or not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. Um, what are you, great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The word, sorry, then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of the armies has sent me to you. For you who despise the day of small things, 
These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. I asked him, What are the two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further, What are the two streams of the olive, uh, the two streams of the olive trees from which the golden oil is pouring through the two golden conduits? Then he inquired of me, Don't you know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So I want to kind of recap and, and explain this vision again. So Zechariah is awakened in, his, in this fifth vision, which features a golden lampstand. That kind of is the, the main feature point of this vision is this gold lampstand. Now, golden lampstands were typical for Old Testament uh, uh, worship uh, settings. They were a very common use. Um, but this one has a few odd features. This isn't just your plain old average lampstand. Uh, this one has some odd features. First, there's a large bowl at the top. Now, again, the bowl at the top of the lamp was not uncommon. They, needed, they had to have something for the oil to set in. But this was a very large bowl. And uh, there were seven lamps around its edge, and each lamp had seven wicks. Now, this tells us that this one lampstand had a total of 49 lights. Uh, we talked about the number seven last week, and here again it comes up. Uh, typically in the Bible, the number seven is a reference to completeness or totality. So seven times seven would be even more perfect or even more perfect completion. But possibly the oddest thing about this lampstand is that it's fueled directly from two olive trees. Now, olive oil was the common oil, the common fuel for lamps in that time, but this lamp doesn't require the people to pick the, the, the olives or process the olives in any way to get the olive oil. They're fed directly from the olive tree, or this lamp is fed directly from the olive trees. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit odd. We step back from it and we say, okay, well, what do these symbols represent? All right, the angel tells us that this vision represents God's promise to Zerubbabel. That through God's power, Zerubbabel will lead the Jews in completing the construction of the temple. The trees represent two anointed ones. Well, who were they? In the Old Testament, or sorry, in Old Testament Judaism, there were two types of people who were typically anointed, and that was the kings and the high priest. Uh, so when we're looking here, there's no king in, uh, there's no Jewish king right now, and so the king, or the person representative of that kingship would have been the governor, Zerubbabel, and the other person represented would have been the high priest, who we talked about last week, Joshua. And so these two trees represent Zerubbabel and Joshua. Um, sorry, uh, also, even though Zechariah doesn't mention a mountain in this vision, the angel talks about a mountain. And so the mountain would represent a very difficult task. Something that, that's really hard for Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel to do, but God says that he will cause the mountain to be a plain before Zerubbabel. Finally, there's a talk about another stone. Uh, this stone is not quite as odd as the stone we looked at last week. Last week there was a stone with seven eyes and an inscription on it. Uh, this week it's just a, a capstone, a ceremonial stone. I don't think it's the same stone. Uh, that one seemed more like the cornerstone of the building. This one is the final step of construction. So we're looking at the beginning of construction and the end of construction. This is the final step. This stone, this stone sounds like the, the, the capstone, the final step of construction. So we talked about the different symbols. We talked about what's going on in, the, in this vision. But what does it all mean? What were the Jews supposed to get from this vision? What message does God have for them? Well, I think, first, this message is mostly for Zerubbabel, that God is going to work through him to finish the temple construction. 
But Zerubbabel must continue to rely on God's power, on God's plan, and on God's protection. It won't be an easy task for him. That's why it's described as the mountain standing before him. It's not an easy task. But why is it a difficult task? Well, from what I can tell, there are two main reasons that this is such a difficult task. First, the Jews struggle consistently with their faith. They have struggled throughout their history with their faith, and they continue to struggle uh, in these post-exilic texts with their faith. They go through seasons where their faith in God is strong, but then they go through these other seasons where they're, it's like they have faith in, in nobody or nothing other than the people around them, or maybe they're turning to other pagan gods. And so that's the first reason that this task is such a difficult task, because the Jews kind of, they, they, uh, their, their faith goes back and forth. There are seasons of strength and seasons of weakness. The second reason that this is going to be such a difficult task is that the Jews face opposition from the, the people around them. The opposition comes in form of uh, intimidation and attacks from their neighbors. Now, of course, these two factors play together to make matters worse. The Jews let their faith get weak, and then their neighbors intimidate them, and the Jews' faith gets weaker, then the neighbors attack them, and then the Jews' faith gets even weaker. But through the power of God's Spirit, He will successfully complete the task, this difficult task. Through faith in God's power, God will see that Zerubbabel will complete this task. That's why the mountain is turned into a plain. Now, Jesus picks up in this imagery in Matthew 17, verse 20. See, the disciples were struggling to cast out a demon from a boy, and they, they cast him out, and, and the, the demon just wouldn't leave. And Jesus comes in, and the father comes up to Jesus, and, and he's begging Jesus for help, and Jesus casts the demon out without any problem. And the disciples come up, and they ask him, why was this so hard for us to do? Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus responds in Matthew 17, verse 20. He says, Because of your little faith, he told them, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So just like Zerubbabel, the disciples had enough, or if the disciples had had enough faith in God's power, he would handle the task before them. So God is saying that through Zerubbabel's faith, God will make him successful in completing the temple construction. Even though it won't be easy, they, uh, there, there will be times that they just don't understand how God will get it done, but God will make it happen. There's going to be times when they want to quit, but through their faith in God, God will make it happen. So now, hopefully, we have an understanding of what the message to the Jews uh, was supposed to be. Now, one of my basic beliefs in studying the Bible is that in order for us to truly understand what the Bible is saying to us, we have to first understand what it was saying to the original audience. See, God has preserved the Bible for us to read and to study and to get to know Him. But it was originally written for a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. So we have to get that historical context. We have to get that historical understanding of the text before we can truly take out that timeless truth and apply it to our lives. If we lose the original meaning then at best, we lose some of the depth of understanding and application for our life. And at worst, we risk misinterpreting the Bible and misunderstanding the character of God. So we really want to make sure we understand what the original message was for the original audience. That's why I wanted to make sure we understood what this message to the Jews was. And now that we know that, hopefully we can take some truth from it and apply it to our context. So the takeaway lesson in this message for all believers through all time and all places is simple. All right, the takeaway message is simple. No matter how hard it seems, if God has given you a task, 
You can accomplish it through faith and reliance on Him. I'm going to say that again because it's important. No matter how hard it seems, if God has given you a task, he, uh, through faith in Him, you can accomplish it. No matter how hard it seems, your faith in God will see that uh, task accomplished, if that task is from God. So, what about us? What about us here at Victory? What is it that God has tasked us with? Now, that goes back to our vision. Our vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that vision comes from the Great Commission. It's disciple-making. Disciple-making is not an easy task. We could look at, at disciple-making as our mountain. It's not an easy task. But it was Jesus' final words to the disciples and the first words to the church. Our job is to make disciples. Our job is to make disciples in the Hope Mills and Fayetteville area first, but then also around the world. Our job is to make disciples. Now, last Wednesday night, we did that through in, uh, our, loads of, uh, our Loads of Love mission. However, making disciples is not something that can only be done through events. Events help in making disciples, but that cannot be our main focus. That cannot be our only focus in making disciples. Making disciples needs to be something that we are doing every day in relationships that we already have. See, maybe that's your mountain. Refocusing the relationships in your life to be disciple-making relationships. All right. Over the past couple weeks, I've compared the Jews' responsibility to rebuild the temple with our responsibility with growing God's kingdom here. But God, uh, growing God's kingdom only happens through making disciples. It's sort of like rebuilding the temple only happens by placing one stone on top of the next stone in the wall. See, God promised Zerubbabel that through faith in God, Zerubbabel would be successful in rebuilding the temple. In the same way, your faith in God will allow God's power to come alive in you in your disciple-making relationships. So that's the fifth vision. The fifth vision is about trusting in God, placing your faith in Him, no matter how difficult the task. If God has given you this task through faith in Him, He will see that you are successful. So our sixth vision, getting into Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1. He says, I looked up again and saw a flying scroll. What do you see? He asked me. I see a flying scroll. I replied, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. And then he said to me, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For everyone who is a thief, contrary to what is written on one side, has gone unpunished. And everyone who swears falsely, contrary to what is written on the other side, has gone unpunished. I will send it out. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It will stay, I'm sorry, it will stay in his house and destroy it along with its timbers and stones. So a couple of details real quick about this scroll. In terms of size, uh, this scroll, a typical scroll, was about 30 to 35 feet long if completely unrolled. So the, the length here isn't that bad. It's the width that makes this one interesting. A typical scroll would only be about 10 to 12 inches wide. So thinking top to bottom, as we roll this out, it's going to be you know, 30 to 35 feet long as you roll it out but then it's only going to be about the size of a regular piece of paper in height as we're writing on it. This scroll is much larger than that. This scroll, um, it says, sorry, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. All right, so that's one thing that makes it atypical. It's much wider than your regular scroll. Secondly, scrolls were almost exclusively written only on one side. So why, why is this scroll so big and why is it double-sided? Now, I can't say for sure, 
but I think it's so big to show the totality of its coverage. We saw that God, or the angel said, this is the curse that's going out over the whole land for everyone who has gone against these two commandments. So I think that's why the scroll is so large, is to show the totality of its coverage. Um, so God is sending this curse over the whole land of Judea. The scroll, the scroll descends from God's presence in heaven and goes out over the whole land of Judea, therefore covering all the Jews who have uh, returned with Joshua and Zerubbabel. Now, you might ask, why would God send a curse over the whole land, over all the people there? Now, the Hebrew term that's used here alludes to the punishments associated with breaking God's covenant. So this is uh, God saying that he is going to punish all those who have broken his commandments. All right, so that's the first question. Why is it so large? Because it's showing the totality of the coverage. God is going to punish everyone who has broken his commandments. Well, so why was the scroll double-sided? Why was there writing on both sides? Well, the, the angel mentions two specific uh, causes for the curse. Swearing, uh, sorry, theft and swearing falsely. Now, theft is easy enough to understand. Uh, it's a sin against another person where you are taking something that doesn't belong to you. Now, that's a sin because it devalues that person, and it says that you are more important than that person, or this object that they have is more important than that person. Now, our theology demands that each and every person is created in the image of God. So this theft, yes, it is a sin against a person, but it's also a sin against God. And then the other, uh, the other cause for this curse is the swearing falsely. Uh, the swearing falsely refers to taking the name of God in vain, and therefore would be a sin directly against God. So these two sins are representative for any other sin. Because all sin is either a sin against another person or a sin against God directly. So the two sides of the scroll represent the two parties offended by sin, the people and God. So God is saying that he's going to punish these sins and purify the land before his presence can reside in the land. See, just like God purified the priesthood in the fourth vision, we looked at that last week where God was purifying Joshua so God purified the priesthood, and now God is saying, I'm going to purify the people. God is purifying the, pe the people in preparation for his presence. There was a lot of alliteration going on there. That made it hard to say. God is preparing the people in preparation for his presence. The timeless truth that we can take from this vision is that God's presence demands purity. When his people fail to live an upright life, God will discipline them. He wants to provide his presence. But to do so, his people must repent from their sin. So what does that mean for us here at Victory? What does this vision mean for us? Right, the, uh, the message for the original audience was that God's presence demands purity. See, the problem is that we cannot, on our own, be pure. We have a problem. We have a problem, and it's a sin problem. Now, I've said before, our problem is not that we sin, but that we are sinful. But God sent His Son, Jesus, to take the punishment for our sin when He died on the cross. But since Jesus lived a perfect life, since Jesus was pure, sin and death had no power over Him, and He was resurrected on the third day. And when we place our faith in Him, He gives us His righteousness. He forgives us our sin and declares us to be innocent. He gives us His purity. That cursed scroll from Zechariah's vision lays its judgment on Jesus so that God's presence can come to us. He comes to live inside us as the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit shows us other areas of our life where we still need to repent from sin. 
So if I have unrepentant sin in my life that, that I have not turned over to God, that's something that I'm keeping to myself, then I'm choosing that sin over God's presence. If I continue to choose that sin over God's presence, I will find myself as the subject of God's discipline. The same can be said for you. If you have unrepentant sin in your life, then you are choosing that sin over God's presence. If you continue to choose that sin over God's presence, you will find yourself subject to God's discipline. The same thing can be said for us as a church, as a church body. If we have unrepentant sin in our church body, then we are choosing that over God's presence. And if we continue to do so, then we will find ourselves as subject to God's discipline. We must aggressively seek to identify and rid our community of sin, aggressively but lovingly. Now, if you find sin in your life, bring it to the cross and leave it there. Literally, in a few minutes, we're going to have an invitation and a response time. You can come up and pray at the cross, and you can give your sins over to God. You can repent from them right there. Leave them at the cross and turn back and follow God. But part of being a member of a church means that you are opening up your life to being held accountable by the other members of the church. Because your sin affects the presence of God in our community. So if you see sin in another church member's life, lovingly help them turn away from it. Don't ignore it. See, accountability, that might not be a great selling point when it comes to uh, church membership, but accountability is important for us as members because we are pursuing God's presence through purity. Now, hopefully, hopefully that's the selling point is that we are pursuing God's presence through purity. Church membership is important for you as a disciple. When we look in the New Testament, there is no mention of an individual disciple outside of a body of Christ. It is understood that each disciple, each uh, Christian would be part of a community of believers. So church membership is important. When we take these two visions together, see maybe the difficult task that God is asking for you is to turn away from your sin and turn towards Him. Maybe the difficult task is to pursue purity because you desire God's presence in your life. God's presence comes from purity. Purity comes from faith in Jesus' sacrifice. And it was faith that brought God's power to level the mountain. So our application, we always take our application from a definition of a disciple um, from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. From that, we take our, our three identifiers of a disciple, knowing, being, and doing. And so each, uh, each sermon has these three application points. It's the knowing, being, and doing. So to know, know that God's power is accessible through faith. God's power is accessible through faith. In today's first vision, we learn that God would make Zerubbabel successful in rebuilding the temple only if he continued to have his faith in God. It was his faith in God that would bring God's power, uh, that would bring God's power to bring about a successful mission. So know that same power is available to you through faith. First, faith in Jesus for salvation but then faith in God to accomplish His mission in your life. The second application point is to be, uh, be made pure. This happens again, first through our faith in Jesus, but it is also a continual process. God speaks to us through His Holy Spirit to reveal sins in our life that we need to repent from. Sometimes He speaks directly to us, and sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks through other church members to help us to become more pure. 
Part of being made pure is being a local, a member of a local body of believers. Now, if you would like to talk about membership, uh, you can see me during the response time or catch me after service uh, and we can talk about it. Honestly, though, that's just going to be the start of the conversation. We'll have a longer conversation about it. Uh, and then finally, the do application is to use relationships for making disciples. Utilize the relationships that are already in your life for making disciples. See, our vision here is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, I strongly believe that the best and most effective vehicle for making disciples is relationships. The tool that we use is the gospel, but the vehicle through which we use that tool is relationships. Through our relationships, we can grow closer to God and help others to grow closer to God as well. So the three application points. Know God's powers is, is accessible through faith. Be made pure and utilize your relationships for making disciples. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that is in your word. And I thank you that you have kept your word for us so that we can know you. Father, I pray this morning that you will help us to, uh, to take this word and apply it to our lives. Help us, God, to place our faith in you so that we can uh, use, so that you can use your power in our lives. Father, I pray that you will help us to be made pure so that your presence can come and reside with us individually and as a community of believers. And God, I pray that you will help us to use our relationships for making disciples. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.